chapter 1 this evening, if you have your Bible there, I hope you do, and uh, we'll get through uh, the first three chapters, Lord willing, uh, this evening of this prophecy. Hosea chapter 1, and of course we read here last time we were together, and uh, we're revising it in some de- to some degree, but we certainly want to read it as, as, a, as a means to context. So it says, the word of the Lord that came on to Hosea, the son of Bered, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, go, take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, which conceived and bare him a son. And the Lord said unto him, Call his name Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it shall come to pass at that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bare a daughter, and God said unto him, Call her name Loruhamah, for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. But I will have mercy upon the house of Judah, and will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, nor by battle, by horses, nor by horsemen. Now when she had waned Loruhamah, she conceived and bare a son. Then said God, Call his name Luami. For ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, Ye are the sons of the living God. Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to eat his blessing upon our gathering here this evening. Father, we thank you uh, this evening, Lord, for the privilege that is ours to meet around your word this midweek and to study this wonderful prophecy uh, from the pen of Hosea. And Father, we just pray tonight as we open the scriptures together that uh, we will see not just what the prophet was saying uh, to the people of his day, but what he is saying to us and how this message applies to our lives and also, Lord, how it applies to those who will live yet future. And Father, we pray that you would just bless us tonight as we unfold these scriptures, that as we dig in, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to get a grasp of this prophecy, to understand the thrust of it. And so, Lord, that when we come back to it again in future days and future times, we will know, Lord, exactly what Hosea was speaking of and to whom he was speaking, and how, O God, you revealed yourself through him. So, Father, we pray your blessing upon us now. We pray your blessing on us also later as we come to the throne of grace and there bear up our burdens before thee. We pray and ask, Lord, that in your goodness and grace you'll meet with us there and that we will be confident of prayers answered. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Hosea chapter 1 then. You'll recall from the previous study of Hosea a couple of weeks ago that Hosea was called to minister to the northern kingdom of Judah as they came under threat from conquest by the Assyrian Empire. And Hosea's prophecy really forms God's final call to the nation of Israel. Remember, we said that although he mentions only one king of Israel in verse 1, Jeroboam, he actually ministered onto the course of seven kings, over the course of seven reigns, uh, right up to the very last king of Israel, King Hosea. And so, uh, you know, in that respect, he is God's last word to this nation. And his call to them would be a call that went unheeded so that Hosea would uh, witness the downfall of the northern kingdom uh, just as Jeremiah witnessed the downfall of the southern kingdom of Judah some years later. Now this book divides itself into two halves and the first half is chapters 1 to 3 and there we think about the injury to his home life. 
Uh, and uh, in the second half, we'll look at, Lord willing, uh, next time we're together, a week after next on this, and, that's the, and that will deal with the iniquity of his homeland. But we want to think tonight about the injury to his home life. And, uh, and maybe we're just going to revise a little bit and then expand on what we said uh, last time. So in verses 1 through 9, you find his command. In these opening verses, God commands Hosea, to marry a prostitute. Now, many commentators, if you read them, they simply cannot accept that God would tell one of his prophets such a thing. Uh, but he did. You know, some of them say, well, you know, what happened was Hosea married Gomer. She was a good woman to begin with, but her character went downhill and she slipped into this promiscuous lifestyle. Well, I'm afraid that's people reading into the text. That's not what the text says. There's no indication as to what Gomer was like when Hosea married her. He was told to go and marry a woman of whoredoms. And so in that respect, we can only assume that she was already a harlot whenever he found her and married her, that she was already a promiscuous woman. Some say, well, you know, it's, it's just a vision. It's not really something that happened. It's purely it's symbolic, it's parabolic. Uh, you know, one commentator actually began his introduction saying that Hosea wanted to marry a harlot uh, named Gomer and God allowed it but warned him that Gomer would break his heart. Now again, for the life of me, I cannot see that in the text. To me, it's very clear. God told him to marry uh, and take on to himself a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms. So that's very explicit. And as strange as that command is to our ears or our sensibilities, God explained why he wanted his prophet to marry this particular kind of woman. He says, For the land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. So Hosea's wife serves a purpose in the plan and program of God insofar as she acts as an object lesson. She becomes uh, a... a, um, symbol of God's own, uh, God's own experience with the nation of Israel. And so Hosea did as God commanded. He finds this immoral woman, this harlot named Gomer. He marries her. And the purpose of God was to show through uh, Hosea's marriage how his love to Israel was steadfast, that no matter how unfaithful they were, even as Gomer was, would be unfaithful to Hosea, that his love for them would remain uh, constant. So Hosea marries this girl, and he loves her uh, to begin with, and they had a baby boy together, and in the will of God, the boy is called Jezreel. And you remember that means God scatters. And it indicates the, uh, the, the end of Israel. God is going to scatter them. He's going to take them into captivity. Uh, indeed, it, it, even further than that, there's a double reference because they're scattered after the crucifixion of Christ and are, are uh, dispersed all over the world. Uh, but this is a name, uh, Jezreel, it's a name of shame in Israel. Now, to understand this name, you have to go back uh, to First Kings, where, and we're not going to take the time to look at it tonight, but you can certainly go back there and look, um, where you read the story of Naboth and Naboth's vineyard. And uh, Naboth's vineyard was located in the valley of Jezreel. Now, this vineyard was right next door to the palace of King Ahab, who decided that he wanted it. So he made Naboth an offer for his vineyard, a financial offer, and Naboth refused to sell it. So Ahab uh, being, a, uh, being a mature and reasonable man, went home and sulked. And as he was sulking, his wife Jezebel comes in and asks why he's so downcast. And he tells her that Naboth refuses to sell him his vineyard. And so Jezebel uh, then orders that the elders of the city set up a dinner with Naboth uh, as the honored guest. And then when they do that, she hires two thugs, two false witnesses to come and falsely accuse Naboth of cursing God and cursing the king. And, uh, the, and as a result of this, Naboth was summarily executed and Ahab took possession of his land. Now, in response to this, uh, God spoke through Elijah. He predicted the death of both Ahab and Jezebel uh, and how they would suffer and announced that the house of Ahab would be cut off from the land of Israel. And so this came to pass when a commander in 
Ahab's army, a man of Jehu, comes and rises up, and he and he, you know, he he basically uh, usurps the throne. He slaughters hundreds of uh, Ahab's relations, his family in the valley of Jezreel, and uh, this genocidal uh, attempt to eliminate the royal family had to be addressed. And hence, you have the reference to it in verse four. And God said unto him, Call his name Jezreel, for yet a little while. I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. So in calling his son Jezreel, Hosea was to some degree harking to the past, reminding people of what became of the line of Ahab and, uh, and indeed now of the line of Jehu and how God dealt with those people because of their sin. And now he's also bringing to bear this, uh, this event from history into the present. And so this particular prophecy is not good news for the, the kings, the last kings of Israel, King Jeroboam II onward, uh, because, you know, it, it's it just as, uh, as, uh, as the dynasty of Jehu uh, came to an end, Jeroboam's destiny was also, uh, dynasty also was going to come uh, to an end. And uh, so it did. His son Zechariah reigns only for six months, and he's assassinated, and that's the end of that line. So uh, he was, so he was, you know, dealing with matters in the present. He was referring to matters in the past, but he was also looking to matters in the future because he saw a day coming in which Israel would be dispersed. And it was, you know, this naming of the son Jezreel was a gentle reminder, a shot across the bow of the nation that God would not tolerate national idolatry and sin and they would be scattered. So, in the course of time, uh, Gomer has a child, uh, a daughter, and it would seem this is her daughter, not uh, Hosea's daughter. If you notice again in verse 6, it says, and she conceived again and bare a daughter. Quite different uh, from what it says with respect to the first uh, child, which says uh, she conceived and bare him a son. There's no indication that he bore, that she bore him a daughter. It just says she bore a daughter. And of course, initially in the introduction to the book, uh, we're told that, she was, that he was to marry a wife of whoredoms and to have children of whoredoms. So this second child is a child of whoredoms. She's a, a child that comes as a consequence of an illicit relationship of some kind. And uh, the child uh, is, uh, is uh, named um, Loruhama, uh, which means no mercy. And so, uh, you know, both of these children that are now to follow Loruhama and Loami are both children uh, of whoredoms. Uh, so Hosea was really called upon to exercise tremendous grace, not only toward his wife, but, but even toward her as a mother. He was required to raise these two children who were the offspring of her lovers. And that must have been very difficult for him. You see, married life simply didn't suit Gomer. And uh, she gave herself to many lovers. And you'll find that as the comparison is made between um, her and, uh, and Israel later on in chapter 2. Uh, so, you know, I don't know about you, but I've known people like that uh, who, you know, should never have been married, you know, should never have, certainly their partner should never have shown any real interest in them if they'd have been wise or uh, if they'd been discerning. Um, you know, there, there is one one uh, young lady in particular that always comes to mind when I read this, and, and uh, she was having relationships uh, with several men uh, in church at one time. Uh, it was, I mean, a shocking instance. Uh, you know, she'd had one man after another, it turned out, and, uh, and then she went from church to church behaving that way, and finally she somehow manages to marry this rather nice Christian man, this lovely Christian man, and you're sort of hopeful that maybe she'll settle down and that'll be that, but she, she didn't, and it wasn't very long before, I mean, within the first few months of marriage, she was unfaithful to him, and uh, she was having an affair with uh, two brothers at the same time, would you believe? I mean, just appalling behavior. And of course, naturally, that marriage fell apart, and uh, she ultimately leaves her husband uh, for one of these two men. And, and as far as I know, she's still with that other man to this day. But what a heartbreaking situation uh, for any young husband to find himself in. But this is exactly where Hosea was. And so the second child, as we mentioned, was called Loruhama. 
a boy, and that means no mercy, signaling that, that God would have no mercy, no pity upon the people of Israel should they continue in sin. In other words, their day of grace was coming to a close. After hundreds of years of trying to woo and to win these people back to himself, their stubbornness had provoked the judgment of God. And Hosea was warning them that they are approaching the end. He was telling them, look, time's up. You know, if, you're, if you don't get right with God, if you don't return to the Lord, he's going to scatter you. You'll have no mercy. You'll no longer be his people. You're going to be in trouble. And God, God's going to deal with you and hand you over to invading armies. So, you know, when, when the little girl was weaned and Gomer conceived again, as I said, she bore this third child. She calls him Lo-Ami, not my people. And God says, uh, saying to them, you know, you're not my people and I will not be your God. That'll be the situation and circumstance in which you're going to find yourselves. So in chapter 2, by the time chapter 2 comes along, Gomer has left Hosea. She's forsaken her, her husband or her children and goes in search of love among strangers. And she plays the harlot. Now, what does Hosea do while his wife is behaving this way? I shared with you a moment or two ago a real-life experience about a husband in a very similar situation where his wife left him and went off with these other men. What did he do? He divorced her. And uh, ultimately, he remarried. Whatever you think about that right or wrong, that's what he did. Uh, and you might, you might excuse Hosea for maybe going down that line also. You may, he might have been forgiven. Uh, when she showed up not with one but two illegitimate children uh, in a row, presumably by different fathers, you know, you might have been forgiven for him saying, you know what, this marriage isn't working and I'm leaving. Uh, but he didn't do that. Uh, you know, he's conflicted over her, her behavior. On the one hand, part of him wants to cast her away. But on the other hand, he really cares for her and he loves her. And he longs to have her back. And even though she is seeing other men, uh, he continues to provide for her. And, he, and, you know, he must have seemed like the greatest fool on the planet uh, to the men who were using her and abusing her. But, you know, love does strange things, doesn't it? Uh, you know, did you ever hear, uh, you know, someone say of, of, uh, of another, I don't know what, uh, you know, she sees in him. <laughs> Maybe he, people say that to Hazel about me, I don't know. But, uh, you know, I don't know what she sees in him or I don't know what he sees in her. And love sometimes is without reason. It, it, you know, it's, it defies logic. And, and, you know, people just have a heart for somebody else and they can't be, uh, they can't be stayed from that. So there's, there's no doubt uh, the response of many uh, would have been very different from the response of Hosea. And, and no doubt he was, he was rather a, an enigma, the people looking in and seeing how that he was still interested in Gomer, was going to pursue her and try to woo her back uh, into his home. So that was the command. He was given this command to go and marry this harlot. Now, notice the comparison in Hosea uh, chapter 1 and verse 10, and we'll read uh, down to chapter 2 and uh, verse... We'll read down to verse 13, and then we'll pick up from there. He says, and of course, now here's the comparison. So already we've had this... Uh, this touch on his personal life, but now it moves beyond uh, Hosea's personal circumstances to the national circumstances. And God is no longer addressing Hosea, but he's thinking about the nation of Israel. And he says, Yet the number of the children of Israel, verse 10, shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, You are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, You are the sons of the living God. Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say ye unto your brethren, Ami, and to your sister, Ruamah, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts." lest I strip her naked and set her as in the day that she was born and make her as a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. And I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be the children of whoredoms. For their mother hath played the harlot. She that conceived them hath done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her paths. And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then was it better with me than now. 
For she did not know that I gave her the corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold which they prepared for Baal. Therefore will I return and take away my corn in the time therefore thereof and my wine in the season thereof and will recover my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. And now will I discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers and none shall deliver her out of mine hand. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths and all her solemn feasts. And I will destroy her fines and her fig trees, whereof she hath said, These are my rewards that my lovers have given me, and I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. And I will visit upon her the days of Baalim, where she burned incense to them, and she decked herself with earrings and her jewels, and she went after lovers and forgot me, saith the Lord. So we can have a reverse situation in this tract where uh, God is speaking about Israel, but the thing is also reflective upon Hosea and his relationship with Gomer. Now, this tract of scripture uh, can also be divided into two parts, uh, and it relates Hosea's circumstances to Israel's spiritual state. First of all, there is this prediction of retribution, which we've just read. You know, in verses 1 to 5, as I say, Gomer's behavior is equated with Israel's behavior, and just as Hosea was to pursue his, this, uh, this woman, the, the godly uh, remnant, remnant of Israel were to pursue uh, their brethren, say unto your brethren, Ami, my people. Say unto your sisters, Ruhama. Say to those who I'm now going to show mercy to, uh, and those who are going to be uh, my people. So God is calling upon the, uh, the, the godly remnant in Israel, of which there were 7,000 in the days of Elijah. Uh, he's calling upon them to reach out to their neighbors and try to bring them to their senses. And of course, Israel had indeed given themselves to the false god Baal, according to verse, uh, verse uh, 6 uh, and onward, and, to, uh, and, to, and, and they, were, uh, they had to be brought to a place where they recognized that God was their true provider. God was providing that for them. They were assuming that the fertility god Baal was blessing them, when in fact it was the Lord that was blessing them. And uh, God says, I'm going to bring you to a place where you're going to say, well, I will go and return to my first husband. I'm going back to the Lord, for then was it better with me than now? I wonder how many backsliders say that. You know, there's, there are backsliders that come to that point, isn't there? They get in, you know, they're in church and they're doing all right and they're walking with the Lord and then next thing, you know, they're away and they're gone and they're out in the world. And then when the world, you know, washes them up again, what do they say? Well, I'm going back to church. I'm going back to the Lord. I'm going to go back and serve. And they realize the folly of their way. So God's intent is to bar their way uh, to Baal by means of discipline and chastening. Verse 6, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns, make a wall that she shall not find her path, she shall, and she shall follow after her lovers, but shall not overtake them. She shall seek them and shall not uh, find them. And, uh, you know, he's going, to, uh, he, he's going to show them that he is ultimately their true resource and the one who blesses them. So he, in keeping with the, the land covenant that we looked at last time, the Palestinian covenant, the Mosaic covenant, whatever you want to call it, in keeping with that covenant uh, of Deuteronomy 28, because they did not obey the Lord, the Lord is cursing the land. He's cursing them in the land. Remember, if they obeyed him, they'd be blessed in their harvest and God would take care of them. If they cursed, if they disobeyed him, he would curse them and their harvests would uh, dry up. And that's exactly what you see in verses 9 through 12. God says, I'll take away the corn uh, and so on. Uh, I will, you know, I'll cause her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons. I'll destroy her vines, her fig trees, uh, and so on. So there's this prediction of retribution upon the land. But then there's also a promise of restoration, which really begins back in verses 10 and 11 of uh, chapter 1. Uh, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea. Locks them into the Abrahamic covenant, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it is said unto them, Ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, Ye are the sons of the living God. Now the question is, where was it said unto them, Ye are not my people? Well, it goes right back to the very first son, uh, Jezreel. Uh, you know, it's, where, where, where are they going to be dealt with by God in the future? In the Valley of Jezreel. They're going to be at the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, the Lord Jesus is going to come and deal with the armies of the world as they try to push Israel into the sea. And in that moment, as he appears, there is national repentance and restoration of the, uh, of the, of the, 
of the people and of their position with the Lord. And, uh, you know, in the very place where they were told, you're not my people, and Jezreel, there shall be said unto them, ye are the sons of the living God. There will be an affirmation and confirmation of their acceptance by the Lord as he comes. And then verse 11 says, Shall all the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head? So for, for generations, since the, since the days going back to Rehoboam and Jeroboam, uh, after Solomon's death, for generations they've had two heads, a king in Judah, a king in Israel. And that's how it was until uh, Israel goes into Assyria and Judah goes into Babylon. And then they don't have any kings. There's no kings. When they return back to the land, there are no kings. And there will be no king until such a time as the Lord Jesus comes. And then the entire nation of Israel shall crown him king. They shall appoint one head who will be over both Judah and Israel. The entirety of the nation. So there's this promise of restoration. And that theme is picked up again in verse 4. Notice what it's, verse 14, sorry, of chapter 2. It says, Therefore, behold... I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. And I will give her her vineyards from thence. There's restoration. And the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, for a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth and as in the days when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishi, husband, and shall call me no more Bali, which means master. For I will take away the names of Balim out of her mouth, and they shall be no more remembered by their name. And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, and with the fowls of heaven, and with the creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth, and will make them to lie down safely. And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. Now remember before they were told, no more mercy. There will be no mercy. Now God is saying, I'm going to give you everlasting mercy. Verse 20, I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness. And thou shalt know the Lord. And it shall come to pass in that day, I will hear, saith the Lord, I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth, and the earth shall hear the corn, the wine, the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel. And I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. And I will say to them which were not my people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. So here we have this promise of full restoration. Now, uh, verse 23 is used by Paul and Peter, and, and it's an application to the Gentile uh, peoples as they come into uh, the knowledge of Christ. But that's not the interpretation of this, passage, of this particular verse in this context, and indeed uh, in keeping with the other prophets and other scriptures. Israel has a future, and that future is that she's going to be restored someday, and God is going to uh, take up his covenant with them afresh. So the, the promise of full restoration uh, will not come, will not be fulfilled until the end of the tribulation period, at the second coming of the Lord. And we know that from Zechariah chapter 12, okay? Now again, I'm not going to take you to Zechariah chapter 12. We will look at it when we get to Zechariah. Uh, but basically what happens is there's, uh, there's a, a prophecy pertaining to the Lord coming uh, and the Israelites recognizing that this is the one who they pierced uh, and then repenting over that sin. So Hosea is, is not as concerned with the details as Zechariah is, and you'll see that when we get there, but he's concerned with the principle. The basic principle is this. Right now you're experiencing retribution, but later on there'll be restoration. And so Israel will be restored and will know the blessing of the Lord once more. And again, coming back to verses 16 and 17, it shall be at that day, the day of restoration, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishi, and shalt call me no more Bali. For I will take the names of Balim out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their names. So again, uh, Ishi means my husband. Uh, and so with great anticipation, God is looking forward to that day uh, when his relationship will be restored with his people, and they will acknowledge him as their husband. And he wanted them to truly know him and to love him and to do so freely. Uh, and uh, he longed for the day that they would have a conjugal love uh, for the Lord and commit their way unto him. 
and no longer were they going to call him Baal-e, my master or my owner. Now, here's the thing I want you to get. Have you noticed these verses? It indicates to us that God takes no pleasure in fear-based relationships. God takes no pleasure in a fear-based legalistic relationship with people where they view him primarily as their master. You know, if I don't do this, he's going to come down on me like a ton of bricks. And sometimes as Christians, we even think that way. You know, we think when we say, oh, God's going to deal with me. He's going to chastise me. He's going to do this or that or, or the other. And that's the mistake of the cults. You know, they thrive on fear. I don't know if this happened here in Northern Ireland. I suspect it probably did. But uh, during the COVID pandemic, when everybody was locked up and people's hearts were filled with fear, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses in England sent out handwritten letters to people. Did they, did they do that here? No? Yes? Anybody get one? No? In England, all over England, they sent out handwritten letters uh, to their neighbors in their street and uh, you know, telling them you know, that these things were part of the end times and whatever, you know, and, and uh, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses had the answer and so on. And so that's fairly typical of their uh, method of operation. It's fairly typical of their history. Uh, when crises come along in the world, they say, well, now Armageddon's just around the corner, and the only way to escape Armageddon is to be a Jehovah's Witness, to join us, and, and if you're not part of our organization, you'll be annihilated, and you'll not be in the kingdom, and, and so on. And the whole thing is fear-based. It's fear-based. And Jehovah's Witnesses and other cult members live in you know, this morbid fear of God. But God didn't want doesn't want them, nor indeed did he want these people living that way. It's not to say we shouldn't fear the Lord, reverence the Lord. We're not saying that at all. But God says, I want you to, I want you to come to me on the basis of love. I want you to serve me because you love me. Because you know that I love you. And so he wants a loving relationship with them where they thought of him primarily not as a master, but as a husband. As a husband. You know, there's an old story that's told, you know, about this woman who married a, an army drill sergeant. And uh, when he came home from his work each day, you know, he would go around the house and he would inspect her housework like, she, like he was in the barracks, you know. And uh, he would go up, you know, up on the shelves and he'd run his white-fingered glove along to make sure she had dusted. Now, I'm, I'm not recommending this, okay? So you guys have think this is a good idea, think again. Don't do it. You'll hurt yourselves. But, you know, but he'd run his finger along, you know, and he'd check in the corners and make sure it should hoover it exactly into the corners. You know, everything had to be pristine. Everything had a place. It had to be in its place. And he made the poor woman's life a misery, and she hated living with him. And then one day she died, or he died. He died, and she married this other man. And the other man wasn't so much interested in dust and you know, vacuuming and polishing and all of that. And he just loved her. Every day he would come home from work. Instead of you know, checking her work, he would take her and he in his arms and he would kiss her and hug her and tell her how much he loved her. And she just loved being married to him. And uh, then after a little while, a bit like Trevor and Alner there, you know, uh, yeah, <laughs> then after a while, <laughs> after a while, she realized she loved being married to this man. But here's the thing that she twigged. She twigged that she did all the jobs that she was doing for her former husband, but she hadn't really thought about it as chores. Because he so loved her, she in return greatly loved him. And she had no, no difficulty in keeping the house with gladness. And, you know, there's a, there's a great lesson there. That's what the Lord wants for us. He doesn't want us to, he doesn't treat us like a drill sergeant, like, like a master in that sense. But he appears to us as a husband who loves us. And he wants us to love him and obey him or, or submit to him because we acknowledge his love and his grace and his care of us. So, when the restoration of, a, uh, you know, of this uh, relationship was uh, complete, what would happen in verse 17 is that the uh, people of Israel would disavow idolatry. God will take away the names of Balaam. No more would they be remembered by their name. And that was the same thing in Hosea's marriage. Once he restores the marriage, 
Um, Gomer realizes what a blessed and fortunate woman she was. She's no longer seeking uh, to be in the arms of other men. So as I say, all the fulfillment of all of this comes at the end of the tribulation. It comes post-Armageddon. Uh, it comes as the Lord comes for the second time. And uh, you say, well, how do you know that? Well, look at verse 18. Notice uh, the, the quality of the blessing. God negotiates a covenant between the nation and the animal kingdom. Verse 18. In that day I will make a covenant with them, with the beasts of the field, and with the fowls of heaven, and with the creeping things of the ground. Now, Isaiah touches on this in Isaiah chapter 11. He gives us a bit more detail. If you look there for a moment, Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 6. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 6. And we'll read down to verse 9. And I, and I love this passage. Uh, I just I, I have an image in my head of, of how this is going to be. And I think it'll be the most wonderful thing. Uh, you know, speaking of the kingdom age, Isaiah says this in verse 6. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. Now that's unnatural. A wolf doesn't dwell with lambs. A wolf eats lambs. You know, uh, in our last house... When we moved in, there was a man next door to us kept chickens. And there was a fox, an urban fox, would come through our garden, you know, with a fair degree of regularity, you know, mangy thing, would come through and uh, it would clear out his chickens. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't common to sit down with the chickens. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the poor man, he, I think when we arrived there, he had about six or eight chickens. And after a few months, he had one chicken left and he had it barricaded in like it was cold. It's, you know, he was trying to keep this fox out. But the same thing with a wolf and a lamb. The wolf shall also dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid, the baby goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. Can you see this picture? And I love this. And a little child shall lead them. You know, you're in the millennium. And you have these creatures which are a threat to little children. Wolves and leopards and lions. God says, during the kingdom age, I'm going to have a covenant. We're going, to, we're going to go back to Edenic conditions, and we're going to have a, I'm going to have a covenant with the animal kingdom, and uh, their threat to humanity will be done. You know, I'm going to deal with it. A little child shall lead them. So in the millennium, a mother might say, or a father might say to his son, son, would you take the lion for a walk? <laughs> and, the, excuse me, and the cow, <coughs> verse 7, and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the sucking child shall play in the hole of the asp in a viper's den. And the winged child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. So when you look at those animals, those creatures, the asp and the cockatrice, you know, they're, they're both dangerous creatures. The, you know, the one that bites and the other with the sting in its tail. Um, you know, they're, they're threatening to our health right now. You know, I remember years ago, Hazel and I, first time we ever went to America, was, I think it was 1986, we went to America. We were in Florida. I was preaching there for about 12 weeks, I think. I was preaching in Florida. So uh, we, we lived there for a, a period of time. And uh, our daughter was three years old. And she was in a house one day. And she was playing with another wee girl of the same age uh, in the house, in the route, in the back garden. Uh, you know, just running around, two wee girls. And the next thing that we heard them screaming and they came in, uh, screaming their heads off. And the, the other pastor that was there sort of calmed them down and says, what's wrong, what's wrong? And the wee granddaughter says, there's a snake, there's a snake, granddad. Well, of course, as soon as he said there, she said there was a snake, he was, he was out there looking to kill the thing. You know, he was looking to see where the snake was. Uh, and, and, you know, as the Lord would have it, the two of them were in the shed when the snake came into the shed or the snake was in the shed when they got in one or the other. And they saw the snake, you know, coming at them or coming out moving or whatever. And as they were running out, they uh, slammed the door behind them. And the, the snake's head got caught on the hinge side of the door. And they crushed the snake's head and killed it themselves, actually, without realizing they'd actually killed the snake. But, you know, uh, when we get into the kingdom age, God's making a covenant with uh, these creatures. And children will be able to play with them freely. And uh, we're not all be going, oh, snakes, you know. <laughs> Scream, there's a snake, you know. Uh, it's, gonna, it's all going to be turned around. Look at Isaiah chapter 65, verse 25. Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 25. So snakes and scorpions will no longer be a threat to us. Chapter 65, verse 25, again, just a summation of what we just read in Isaiah's prophecy. 
uh, earlier in verse, chapter 11, uh, verse 25, the wolf and the lamb shall feed together and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock. So the lion's no longer a carnivore. It's no longer going to be a flesh-eating creature. It shall eat straw like the bullock, like a cow. And dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord. And so not only will God make a covenant that, that includes uh, and, uh, the kingdom of animals, but also he's going to bring to end uh, war. In verse 18 of Hosea chapter 2, And I will break the bow and the sword, the battle out of the, the, battle out of the earth, and will make them to lie down uh, safely. And of course, Isaiah also touches on that in chapter 2 of Isaiah. And he says, He shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Okay, so that's the comparison that's made between Hosea's circumstance and Israel's circumstance, how that there would be retribution, how that there's almost a conflict. In the one hand, God is desirous to express his holiness, but on the other hand, he's wishing to express his mercy and his love toward them. So, I want to think about his compassion then. Hosea chapter 3, and we'll read these five uh, short verses together. Then said the Lord unto me, Go yet, love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel, who looked to other gods and loved, and loved flagons of wine. So I bought her to me for fifteen pieces of silver, and for an homer of barley, and half a homer of barley, and I said unto her, Thou shalt abide for me many days, thou shalt not play the harlot, thou shalt not be for another man, so will I also be for thee. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king and without a prince and without a sacrifice and without an image, without an ephod and without a teraphim. Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. So we come to chapter 3, the last part of this section of the book. And uh, Gomer has reached rock bottom. And what we defined is that she's actually uh, no longer of interest to those who were using her body, but she's been sold into slavery. Now, what is Hosea going to do? Well, here's what he did, and we just read it. He makes his way to the slave market, and there he waits. And you can imagine this poor man, you know, waiting to see his wife come out, you know, as, as uh, one of the lots in the slave market. And, uh, you know, there she stands before him and all the other purchasers naked and ashamed and ready to be sold. And, you know, she can't have looked like much at this point. You know, she's, she's been used and abused by men. And besides, you know, everyone knowing her past would have had very little interest in investing in her as a slave. Uh, she's damaged goods, so to speak. Who would want a washed up uh, streetwalker for a slave? Not very many. So you can imagine the, the bidding begins, you know, and, and people you know, are offering pennies for her, two shekels, and somebody shouts, and then uh, Hosea shouts three, I'll give three shekels, and then somebody shouts four, and Hosea shouts, I'll, I'll give five, and he keeps upping uh, the bid until finally he buys her at the cost of 15 shekels. That's half the normal price of a slave. Remember the Lord Jesus was sold uh, by Judas for 30 pieces of silver, uh, the price of a slave. Well, this is half the price of a slave, and he brings her home, and he resumes loving her as before. He says to her, "Thou shalt abide for me many days. You're going to live with me for the rest of your life. You're not going to be a harlot. Uh, you'll not be for any other man. You're just for me only. So will I also be with thee. I'm only going to have eyes for you." And uh, he's loving her according to the love of the Lord. That's what verse three says, and that's what he was commanded to do—to love her according to the love of the Lord. Now, what in the world is all this about? Well, it's about love. It's about redemption. It's about restoration. It's about God's heart toward a wayward people, about his love for them, even when they don't love him in return. Uh, you know, there's a part of his holiness, his righteousness, his judge, justice that um, you know, desires to cast them out uh, and uh, cast them away. He certainly has to judge them and without mercy. Uh, and yet he must, you know, even though he must treat them as though they're not his, still he loves them. In truth, God still loves them and was reaching out to them. His great desire to all mankind 
is to bring the wayward men home again, to bring the lost in. You know, we sing the song, bring them in, bring them in, bring them in from the fields of sin. And that's the idea. God wants to bring men in and women in from the fields of sin. So really this whole episode teaches us two primary things about the character of God. First of all, it tells us something about God's grief over sin. You know, Hosea is heartbroken at the antics of Gomer, just as God is heartbroken at the idolatry of Israel. And you know, sometimes we, like Israel, don't sense God's grief with our sin. You know, we're so sin-soaked in the world that sin doesn't really impact upon us. You know, you and I sit at night watching the news and they say, you know, this person was murdered and, and we treat it like it's a football result. You know, you come in and say, oh, you hear there's a big shoot up there in America. Ten people were shot dead. Isn't that terrible? But, but you don't feel it. You don't feel it. You're just reporting it as the news reporter does, as a matter of fact. And you just accept it. As a, you say, it's terrible. But you don't feel a sense of grief over it. We don't feel a sense of brokenness over it. But God feels grieved by man's sin and by our sin. And that's why Paul says to us as believers, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. You see, even our sin as Christians is a matter of grief to God. You know, and we sin, we shouldn't be indifferent about our sin or careless about our sin or hard about our sin. You know, we should realize that here, this is, a, this is something that Jesus died for. This sin put my Savior to the cross. This sin uh, moved God to do something really dramatic for the salvation of my soul. Uh, this sin, you know, was the cause of my Savior's suffering. And I should feel grief over my sin, just as God is grieved over my sin. But not only does this entire tract of Scripture speak about God's grief uh, regarding our sin, it speaks about God's grace despite our sin. You see, the nature of God is love. And of course, John says that God is love. And though mankind has fallen and dramatically fallen at that, God goes on loving men. He goes on loving the world. You know, his love is the one constant in this world. You know, everything else changes. But God's love is everlasting, even as we sang in our opening hymn, love by everlasting, love with everlasting love, led by grace. That love to know. What a marvelous line to open a hymn with. And God graciously, you know, has met our needs day by day, every day, whether we have sinned or haven't sinned, whether we're walking with him or haven't walked with him that particular day. You know, we still have food on our table and clothes on our back and a, and a roof over our head and a Savior in heaven. We have all these blessings that come our way uh, because of him. And just as Hosea stepped into the slave market to redeem his bride. Uh, so God did the same thing in sending the Lord Jesus for us. He sent him seeking for me. He sent him into the slave market of sin to purchase me, to pay my redemption price. And uh, one writer puts it this way. If Hosea's story cannot be real, because God could not ask a man to marry an unfaithful woman, then neither is the story of salvation real, because that is precisely what Christ has done for us. He has purchased us for himself to be a bride, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but to be holy and blameless. And he has done this even though he knew in advance that we would often prove faithless. Now there is the truth of it. He saved us even though he knew who we are, what we are, what we would do, and how there would be days when we would have to confess, Lord, I've been less than faithful. Still he loved us. Still Jesus came and died for us. You see, the remarkable thing about grace is, it, is that it always outproportions sin. Our, our sin can never outdo God's grace toward us. And that's what Paul meant when he said, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Although, you know, we perhaps went on sinning, God went on loving us. And though we grieved him, he loves us still. He still cares. John wrote this, here in his love, not that we loved God, but what? That he loved 
us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. Hosea set his affections upon Gomer. Ever before Gomer determined to love Hosea in return. You know, of God's love, one preacher wrote the following. And I like this quotation. Grace means there's nothing we can do to make God love us more. That's true, you know. You can't make God love you more. You know, you know sometimes we are a little bit like Rachel and Leah. You're trying to get people to love us more. But you don't have to, you don't have to compete for God's affection. God loves us with an everlasting and perfect love. Grace means there's nothing we can do to make God love us more. No amount of spiritual aerobics and renunciations, no amount of knowledge gained from seminaries, no amount of crusading on behalf of righteous causes, and grace means there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. No amount of racism or pride or pornography or adultery or even murder. Grace means that God always loves us as much as an infinite God can possibly love. Now, I know when you read a quote like that, it's hard to get your head around it. <coughs> Excuse me, because that's not how we love. We don't love with an in- infinite love. Our love is often conditional, isn't it? You know, we fall in and out of relationships with people. I don't mean romantic relationships. I just mean relationships generally, you know. You can have a fellow who's your friend one day and then something happens and you never speak to him again as long as you live. But God doesn't act that way. And that's the message of Hosea. And that is why God in his providence called Hosea to experience the injury to his home life. Now, as this book closes out from chapter 4 onward, we get God's plea to the nation of Israel. And, uh, you know, that, that plea which uh, is mentioned and is introduced in chapter 2 and verse 2, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. That plea is detailed from chapter 4 all the way through uh, to chapter 14. And we're going to think about that the next time we're together, the iniquity of his homeland and see how God described this nation and yet he loved them anyway. It's a powerful, powerful book of redemption and restoration. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this evening.